Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hi, everybody. This is Vank Belamkanda, and I'm really excited to introduce this new segment where we're going to bring high quality educational offerings from our other didactic venues, such as Grand Rounds, to you all to be able to listen to. Um, I'm really proud of the speakers we have and the quality of education they bring, and I'm hopeful that this will be valuable for you all. Of course, forgive the fact that occasionally there will be audience participation events or visuals that won't translate really well to the audio space, and these are not being recorded for the purpose of the podcast but I think they are incredibly meaningful and valuable overall and densely packed with um, things that you can take to your clinical practice or other aspects of your practice. And so um, with that said, I'm really excited that you'll be able to enjoy them. First up in our series, I'm excited to introduce to you Dr. Serena McGuire. She is one of our chief residents and um, is an exceptional individual who's talking about something she's particularly passionate about, which is managing and caring for people who are violent or potentially violent in the emergency department. And to introduce her is Dr. Casey Clements, who is a colleague and friend of mine as well. I uh, think he's one of the who's who in emergency medicine. And so with that said, let's get started. It is my absolute distinct pleasure and honor today to be able to introduce our grand round speaker, Dr. Serena McGuire. I think most of us and I'll, most of us know her. Dr. McGuire is a chief resident in emergency medicine and an instructor in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Mayo Clinic. Um, she has a degree. She has several degrees. She has a degree in criminal justice. She actually also has a, she has a bachelor's degree in environmental studies, a post-baccalaureate degree. And actually worked as a pharmacy technician before going back to medical school at Penn State University. She started her career out of high school, actually, in the military and served. She had a very decorated military career serving in South Korea, Okinawa, and was also stationed in Tokyo. She ran security in places like Singapore, Thailand, the Philippines, Cambodia, and Diego Garcia. So you'll have to get out your globe to find those places. Um, and did a tour of duty in Iraq. Um, her residency career is equally as decorated. Um, she actually has national roles with the Emergency Medicine Residents Association, where she serves as the uh, representative to the Emergency Medical Services Committee at ASEP, as well as the tactical medicine uh, uh, section of ASEP. And within EMRA is the chair nationally of the disaster or the pre-hospital and disaster medicine committee this year. She will finish her residency by my count of the ones I know about with at least 10 first author papers. And to put that into context, a normal or an average PhD student during their doctorate career will, or during their doctorate education will do between two and four first author publications. And these are not small publications. She has worked across service lines. She has um, studied EMS services, police officers. She has studied multiple centers across the Midwest um, and has been extremely successful at that. In addition to that, she has numerous abstracts as well as presentations. Many things differentiate Dr. McGuire from the rest of us mortals, um, but chief among them is really a blend that she has of an incredible hard work ethic, um, where, which she's demonstrated at every stage of her life, as well as ambition, which we all too often lack in our specialty, especially in emergency medicine, where she sees what she can do and feels like she can actually make the world better by doing it. And that has and will continue to make her very successful. Um, today, she's going to talk as, about workplace violence, which is a subject we've heard about before. And in many ways, this is part two of uh, previous Grand Rounds that I have given. I focused mostly on the general um, issues and the Mayo's broader approach to those. And Dr. McGuire is going to discuss her own work, as well as her uh, the work specifically within emergency medicine applicable to the emergency departments for each of us and will probably be um, more interesting and helpful um, than before. And with that, I, it is my pleasure to turn it over to Dr. Serena McGuire. Thank you so much, Dr. Clements. I really appreciate that introduction. 
The theme of my talk today is centered on the agitated, violent patient. In our department, we often assign these patients a violet flag in EPIC to caution the healthcare team regarding their propensity for violence. I hope that after this talk, you'll view these patients in a resuscitation mindset and consider a team-based approach in dealing with these difficult encounters. I have no financial disclosures. On a more personal level, I should point out, as Dr. Clements mentioned, I'm a former military police officer, and this experience has greatly contributed to my view on this topic. And like many of you, I'm also a victim of workplace violence. This photo was taken over a year ago when I was around 20 weeks pregnant. Not long, not long after, I was kicked in the abdomen by an agitated, intoxicated patient. I share this to highlight that despite all my interest and in research on this topic and prior job in law enforcement, I myself am not immune to violence. As I hope to emphasize later on in this talk, it is how we handle these incidents that will make all the difference. We have a lot to cover today. We'll define the problem of workplace violence and recognize the impact it has nationally and how national data compares to our own numbers within the Mayo Health System and the emergency department at St. Mary's. We'll start big and then narrow down in focus. I'll warn you, there'll be quite a bit of data initially, but I think it's important to really understand the extent of this issue and how it impacts the entire multidisciplinary team. We'll discuss the importance of reporting incidents and barriers to doing so. Then we will change gears and I'll do my best to impart on you the need to change existing mentality associated with these patient encounters and the need for a team-based approach to workplace violence. And I'll walk you through how I personally approach these encounters. And finally, I'll outline established resources in place within our department at the Mayo Clinic. There will be some opportunities for interaction today, so please make your way to this Poll Everywhere site. You can hold your phone's camera up to the QR code on the screen to be taken to the website or, uh, or type in the web address, pollev.com slash Serena, common spelling, MCGUI 776. Take a moment to think back on a difficult patient encounter you've had in training or in clinical practice, where you may have felt threatened or abused, maybe even physically assaulted. Think about how this encounter made you feel. Did the incident leave a lasting emotional or physical impact? Did you feel prepared to handle the situation? Or did you feel helpless and frustrated that all the education, training, and testing that we go through on our path to becoming an EM physician did not adequately prepare us for the real world of healthcare? Because the real world of healthcare involves violence. Healthcare workers experience the highest rates of injuries caused by workplace violence in the U.S. and are five times more likely to suffer an injury at work. Violence continues to make the news, and hospital-based shootings nearly doubled between 2000 and 2011. In one survey study of 65 emergency departments across the United States, one in five ED directors reported guns or knives being brought into the ED on a daily or weekly basis. And as some of you may recall from recent years, we too have experienced weapons brought into our own ED as well. But workplace violence encompasses so much more than the shootings and stabbings that make the news. Consider all the agitated or violent patient encounters you've found yourself in. In hindsight, did you consider these situations to be an act of workplace violence at the time? Or was it, quote, just part of the job? Spoiler alert, it's not part of the job. To understand any problem, we must first define it. The Joint Commission defines workplace violence as an act or threat occurring at the workplace that can include any of the following. Verbal, nonverbal, written, or physical aggression, threatening, intimidating, harassing, or humiliating words or actions, bullying, sabotage, sexual harassment, physical assaults, or other behaviors of concern involving staff, licensed practitioners, patients, or visitors. This table is from an exceptional article James Phillips published in the New England Journal of Medicine regarding workplace violence. It demonstrates how violence has been classified into four types on the basis of the relationship between the perpetrator and the workplace itself. The most common type of violence experienced in healthcare is type two violence, where the perpetrator or patient is a customer of a business or hospital. Type two violence accounts for over 90% of all assaults against employees. However, other types described here do still occur. Before I dive into some data, let's take a moment for a poll. Respondents from which of the following discipline denied experiencing workplace violence within the Mayo Clinic Midwest Health System? For clarity, I'm referring to all 20 emergency departments encompassing Mayo Health System sites across Wisconsin and Minnesota, including the ED here in Rochester. Your options are A, unit secretaries or CTAs, B, housekeeping, C, management, D, respiratory therapy, or E, none of the above all experience violence. 
And if you missed the first slide with the link, uh, just a reminder that the link to the survey is at the top at pollev.com slash Serena MCGUI 776. Give it a couple more seconds. All right, we're holding still at 21. Wow, you all are correct. Um, wonderful, good job. Sad, sad result, but more to come. So according to data from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, between 2011 and 2013, the number of workplace assaults averaged approximately 24,000 annually, with nearly 75% occurring in healthcare settings. However, inconsistencies in published data have made it difficult to establish the true extent of the problem. The Bureau of Labor Statistics and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health are among several federal agencies devoted to the collection of statistics on workplace violence, and their results are disparate. Results of academic studies also vary considerably. An inconsistency in defining categories of violence, such as verbal assault, threats, physical assault, and battery, compromise reliability among studies. This slide demonstrates the variability in reported incidents of violence across different studies. Among ED nurses, prior research has shown an annual incidence of verbal abuse and physical, physical abuse ranging from 39 to 98% and 13 to 67% respectively. Among emergency physicians, the incidences range from 75 to 96% and 51 to 78% respectively. However, keep in mind that this likely represents underreported data, as current literature tells us only 30% of nurses and 26% of physicians go on to report incidents of violence. We will further address barriers to reporting why it is so important to report these incidents in later slides. Focusing on Mayo-specific data, you may recall a survey study we sent out at the end of 2020. This was an anonymous survey of all multidisciplinary ED staff at 20 Midwestern EDs, encompassing our large health system in Minnesota and Wisconsin between November and December 2020. The incidence of verbal abuse and physical assault experienced and witnessed by respondents over the prior six months was solicited, as well as its perceived impact on staff. In this study, we characterized verbal abuse into threatening tone of voice, abusive language, racial, gender, and sexual harassment, and personal threats of violence. We characterized physical assault into assault with weapons, assault with bodily fluids, sexual assault, and other physical assault, such as punching, biting, and scratching. A total of 833 respondents completed the survey. The demographics of our cohort are listed here. The cohort included clinicians, which included attending and resident physicians and advanced practice providers, nursing staff, unit secretaries, ancillary testing services, including ECG and radiology techs, urology techs and phlebotomists, registration and finance staff, paramedics and EMTs, social workers, respiratory therapists, housekeeping staff, management and security officers. I'll point out that despite our best efforts to include as many disciplines as possible, there are still some important groups missing, such as medical students, pharmacists, off-service residents, and consult services. The paramedics and EMTs listed here are those who work within the hospital to provide clinical assistance at some rural sites, and so this group does not fully represent our pre-hospital personnel who experience a particular risk for violence given their limited resources in the field and work in others' homes. Overall, 72% indicated some form of violence experienced in the preceding months, and 67% indicated some form of violence witnessed against a coworker. 71% of respondents indicated experiencing verbal abuse, and 66% indicated witnessing verbal abuse against a coworker. 31% indicated experiencing some form of physical assault, and 35% indicated witnessing physical assault against a coworker. As you can see here, all disciplines experience some type of verbal abuse, and all disciplines, with the exception of housekeeping, experience some type of physical assault within the study period. So again, you were all correct with your answers. Nursing staff, clinicians, and security personnel had the highest rates of verbal abuse at 90% or greater. Nursing staff, clinicians, and security also had the highest rates of physical assault. As you can see here in blue, over one-third of clinicians and over half of nursing staff experienced some type of physical assault within the study period. However, also recognized the high rates of physical assault experienced by the rest of our multidisciplinary team. Respondents were asked to indicate how prepared they felt to handle verbal abuse in the ED. 
As you can see, nearly all felt prepared to handle verbal abuse to some degree. Males indicated feeling more prepared to handle verbal abuse compared to females, as did those with more years of experience and those working in the positions of social work and security. These differences were statistically significant. Respondents were asked to indicate how prepared they felt to handle physical assault in the ED. Here we see a wider range in answers. Again, males felt more prepared to handle physical assault compared to females, as did those with more years of experience and those working in security. Again, these differences were statistically significant. So among our large Mayo Midwest Health System cohort, 22% of respondents indicated that being the victim of workplace violence has affected their ability to perform their job. And nearly half indicated that being a victim has changed the way they interact with their perceived patients. 21% indicated experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress as a result of an incident, such as flashbacks, severe anxiety, emotional numbing, diminished interest in everyday activities, or detachment from others. 18% have considered leaving their position due to an incident. I can tell you that this impact is universal and is not unique to Mayo Clinic. So in summary, within our Mayo Midwest Health System, which includes the ED in Rochester, the entire team experiences workplace violence to some degree. Females indicated feeling less prepared than their male colleagues to handle violent encounters, as did newer hires compared to those with more years of experience. And workplace violence has significant impact on the entire multidisciplinary team, with nearly one in five staff indicating that they have considered leaving their position due to an incident. Please keep all of this in mind in your future agitated violent patient encounters. You may wonder how the emergency department at St. Mary's in Rochester compares to the entire aggregate data from the health system. We previously surveyed all multidisciplinary ED staff at St. Mary's St. Mary's earlier in 2020 at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic between April and May 2020. With that survey study, we actually found a worse incidence of violence within our ED compared to the health system overall, despite our wonderful, wonderful violence mitigation resources that we have here, which I will discuss further in subsequent slides. Overall, 86% of the cohort reported being verbally abused in the preceding six months, and 38% reported being physically assaulted. Again, all team roles experience verbal abuse at some point in a six-month time period, and nearly all experience physical assault with the exception of our unit secretaries and registration staff. However, as you can see, we left out some important disciplines with this initial study, which were later added to the second survey study of the entire health system. Now, I'm curious to learn how you feel COVID-19 has impacted workplace violence. I'll ask you to answer this poll question, and then I'll share what we have found. Your options are A, COVID has had an impact on violence and the incidence has increased. B, COVID has had an impact and the incidence has decreased. Or C, COVID has not had an impact on violence and the incidence has stayed the same. I'll give a couple more seconds to get some answers in. All right. Okay, so most are saying yes, the incidence of violence has increased. And you are correct. As you have subjectively perceived, we have objectively showed that the pandemic has not helped. Despite healthcare workers initially being hailed as heroes, we found that incidence of violence at our ED in Rochester increased. And we found a positive association between these violent incidents and the local COVID-19 case rate. In this graph, you can see the positive association between the monthly hospital referral region COVID-19 case rate in orange and the rate of violent ED incidents in black, as well as an increase in violent incidents overall compared to the previous year. Revisiting the earlier slide that demonstrated poor national reporting statistics, we as a health system are right at the national average when it comes to reporting. The majority of our cohort indicated never or rarely reporting incidents of violence. As many of you know, I'm a strong advocate of reporting violent incidents for the following reasons. First, we need to clearly define the extent of this problem so we can move beyond this initial stage. It is also helpful to have a data set of associated patient and situational factors to use for future mitigation strategies. And as physician leaders, we need to set a precedent for the rest of our team that violence is not part of the job. It is important to normalize talking about violence that we experience and encouraging others to report these incidents. 
Good leaders practice what they preach, and so too should you report your violent patient encounters. Barriers to reporting are numerous and are often difficult to overcome. A common misconception is that violence is just part of the job. Again, it is not, nor should it be. Other commonly perceived barriers include lack of support from supervisors or administration, no reporting mechanism in place, complexity or unclear process to report, fear of retribution from healthcare administrators or patients, and uncertainty regarding what constitutes violence. Perpetrators can be under the influence of substances, delirious, or have a history of dementia. These patient factors make culpability less clear to victims as well as to law enforcement. Going back to our health system cohort, respondents were asked to indicate why they felt abuse in the ED was not typically reported with very similar responses, including no physical injuries sustained, abuse comes with the job, too busy during shift, it's an inconvenience, the report won't be taken seriously, not wanting the perpetrator to have their full name, fear of retaliation, and that it may affect customer service scores. When asked about familiarity with the process of reporting incidents of violence, we received a wide variety of answers from respondents as seen here. When asked how they would report or have reported incidents, only 37% of respondents indicated the institution's preferred method of through the employee incident report or EIR. Additional answers included hospital security, to their supervisor, the ED charge nurse, through the medical information data analysis system or MIDAS event reporting, which is a tool used for patient safety incident reporting and to law enforcement. Okay, that was a lot of data. Now that you understand what we're up against, let's change directions and talk about how to tackle these difficult patient encounters. A wise mentor once told me to run at what scares you in EM. You are likely scared of these encounters and rightfully so, but with practice, your efforts may make a world of difference to your team. So again, take a moment to imagine. It's a busy night in the ED and you get a page that you're up for an incoming R-team activation. It's a medical extremist and so you ready your team for what's to come. You highlight patient priorities in the initial plan and you adapt your approach based on the pre-hospital report and initial evaluation of the patient upon arrival. If you suspect septic shock, you pressure bag IV fluids and coordinate phlebotomy to come into the room and draw labs, including blood cultures before you start broad spectrum antibiotics and you have pressors readily available if blood pressure is not responding to fluids. But one thing is for certain, the entire team works together in the pursuit of stabilizing your unstable patient. We practice in a team-based environment where all members of the team have a critical role to play in patient care. Envision the role of team leaders similar to that of an orchestra conductor, responsible for coordinating delicate movements of essential personnel in a chaotic environment. The team leader sees the big picture and prioritizes bedside tasks with nursing staff, lab, ECG, and radiology. And being the good team leader that you are, you would not leave your team alone with an unstable patient. If you did have to step out of the room with these vital signs on the monitor, you would certainly first ensure that oxygen is being placed, sepsis fluids and antibiotics have been administered, and norepinephrine was running. So then why is it that as physicians, we often leave our team to manage agitated, violent patients on their own? I see it all the time. An intoxicated patient is brought in by law enforcement or EMS and arrives quite agitated. The patient's nurse is left with the patient alone in the room to start taking the chief complaint and vitals. Or security is already starting to put hands on the patient to hold them down and protect nursing staff before a provider has even arrived to assess the patient. I also frequently see a nervous off-service intern, perhaps an ophthalmologist in a preliminary medicine year working their first ED shift ever, stuck with managing this type of patient. Now, nothing against an ophthalmologist, they just shouldn't be in charge of managing a critically ill patient on their own, especially one that can inflict such significant damage on our ED team. I propose we reframe these encounters. Think of these patients as you would a resuscitation. I frame these difficult encounters in my mind as a level of violet resuscitation. As a reminder, violet is the color associated with violent patients at our institution. When you see an agitated or combative patient arrive via EMS or law enforcement, stop what you're doing in the pod and see the patient immediately. Take ownership of these patients as a consultant or senior resident. Do not let inexperienced junior trainees be responsible for solely managing these patients. These are high stakes encounters. 
In emergency medicine, we think in terms of sick versus not sick with patients. Considering all that has been covered in previous slides, how these patients can cause significant mental and physical harm to our team members. And by the way, we haven't even covered how these patients can cause self-harm as well. We need to consider these patients to fall into the sick group. Similar to a medical or trauma resuscitation, stand at the foot of the bed and coordinate the acute phase of stabilization. Quickly rule out or evaluate the potential for contributing medical emergencies such as hypoglycemia or an intracranial hemorrhage. In the coming slides, we will walk through how to practice the art of the level violet resuscitation. But first, a reminder that our department utilizes a staff duress notification that has designated team member roles and responsibilities that goes in hand with what I am proposing. Our department staff duress process involves all of these team members listed here with predetermined roles and responsibilities. For the sake of space, I haven't listed out all the roles of involved personnel. This may look similar to our staffing model for resuscitations. That's because these encounters should be treated like a resuscitation. Take note that consultants are directed to respond immediately to these duress activations as you would any recess. Despite the responsibilities and expectations listed here, I've not yet witnessed the same responsive personnel to these duress activations as I do to other medical or trauma resuscitations. Moving into the art of the level violent resuscitation. First, recognize the highest risk lies in your patients with altered mental status, often from dementia, delirium, or substance abuse. Long wait times, crowding, receiving bad news, and gang activity are other risk factors. Additionally, patients in police custody have been involved in nearly one-third of ED shootings. There are telltale signs that an individual is starting to become aggressive. Think of the mnemonic STAMP. S stands for staring or prolonged glaring at staff. T is for tone that is sharp, sarcastic, loud, or argumentative. A is for anxiety, demonstrated by flushed face, heavy breathing, rapid speech, or reaction to pain. M is for muttering, such as talking under their breath, criticizing staff to self for others, or mimicking staff. And P is for pacing, walking around in a confined space, walking into areas that are off limits. Use this mnemonic to remember what to look out for in a patient. If you find yourself alone with a patient who's revving up, think to yourself, how would a police officer be positioned right now? The answer is usually with arms held in front and legs slightly apart. This is called the interview stance, and it allows you to have space and time to react. Know the quickest way to egress from a situation and never turn your back on an agitated patient. Additionally, keep curtains open so staff can see if you need help, and be wary of agitated patients reaching into pockets or personal belongings that haven't been searched. These represent areas where weapons can be concealed. Along those lines, don't hesitate to call for backup. The biggest mistake you can make with these patients is trying to manage them solo. Call for resources early, such as your consultant or senior resident, additional nurses, hospital security, and our hospital resource officer if needed. Use the staff duress button on the back of your ID badge if you feel there's an immediate need for an intervention with an acutely agitated patient. As a reminder, you need to press and hold this button for three seconds, after which a message will appear on the ED SAS and beaver boards noting staff duress in your location. If you're cornered in the room and separated from your badge, try to reach for the staff assist button on the wall underneath the patient monitor. Try to first prevent or de-escalate situations by understanding where they have arisen. Have a go-to toolbox of low-hanging fruits. Dim the lights, acknowledge concerns, offer food or a hot blanket. A turkey sammy can actually cure a lot. Practice the art of de-escalating tense situations with words. In the Air Force, we call this verbal judo. I'm not saying it works every time, but when it does, you'll feel like a pro. Next, recognize if the patient has capacity to refuse medical care or not. This is essential. If the patient is being verbally abusive to staff and we have done our due diligence in rolling out an emergency, that patient is free to leave. But be sure before they go to explain to them that verbal abuse of our staff is not tolerated. For example, I once had a patient with a kidney stone who was being extremely rude to nursing staff yelling at them from the room for more analgesia before it was due and being verbally abusive to them once they were in the room. I entered the room and explained to him that behavior such as that would not be tolerated and that while I would work towards better controlling his pain, he needed to be more respectful in his interactions with the team or he would be asked to leave. His demeanor changed and he was apologetic and more pleasant to nursing staff for the remainder of his ED stay. Sometimes patients don't recognize the effect of their behaviors and it is appropriate to point it out and ask them to please stop. 
Recognize these behaviors and don't let them continue for the sake of the team. But if low-hanging fruits don't work and the patient is still undifferentiated and we haven't rolled out an emergency, don't hesitate to move quickly to physical restraint to protect the patient and staff. I give a warning to the patient. I need you to stop doing that right now for your safety and the safety of my staff. If you don't show me that you can safely calm down, then we will move towards putting you in restraints. I provide this warning clearly and firmly, and it helps both the patient and the team know the next steps. If we are forced to move towards restraints, I let the patient know that when they're willing to show that they're no longer a threat to themselves or others, we would be more than willing to remove them. Do not allow patients to get away with bad behavior. Be firm in your decision to protect the team. For example, I had an intoxicated patient being cooperative with nursing staff, but randomly kicking at a security guard who was standing nearby. Security personnel are valued members of our healthcare team. Please do not allow them to be physically assaulted. The patient was warned if he kicked the guard one more time, he would be restrained, and he was promptly put into restraints upon the subsequent kick. Same with spitting and biting. Do not ever tolerate this. I will grab a face mask myself as I'm calling for a spit hood to be brought in while the rest of the team is holding the patient down. And I'll add, don't forget to place an order for restraints afterwards for nursing staff and to document a face-to-face -face on EPIC when restraints are placed. And always remember to de-escalate them as soon as the situation allows. Moving into pharmacotherapy, what are the first-line agents recommended in our ED at Rochester for undifferentiated psychomotor agitation? Your answer choices are A, ketamine and haloperidol, B, ketamine and midazolam, C, diphenhydramine, haloperidol, and lorazepam, also known as the B52, or D, midazolam and droperidol. Give a couple more seconds. Midazolam and droperidol, 73%, um, with some other answer choices selected. You guys are doing great. So familiarize yourself with our department's undifferentiated psychomotor agitation care pathway. This can be found on the clinical practice tab on our department's internet page under guidelines and protocols. And to clarify, this is not chemical restraint. Chemical restraint is defined as being used as a punishment or out of convenience for the healthcare team. Rather than chemical restraint, we treat symptoms of anxiety or agitation to help people from harming themselves or others. As you appropriately guessed, midazolam and droperidol are two preferred agents for initial short-term management of agitated and violent patients who are undifferentiated and require sedation in order to complete an assessment. This is not definitive management, which should be guided by the underlying cause of the agitation. The first page of the agitation pathway guideline has an important box to consider for specific situations. Remember to reduce medication doses in half for elderly patients. You can always give more, but you can't take away from what's been given. Oral medication is always a consideration, but if there's any concern the patient might become more agitated in a short time period, keep in mind that these will have prolonged time to take effect. And higher or more frequent doses of benzodiazepines may be needed in some cases, particularly in chronic ethanol abuse. The second page of the agitation pathway is equally important. It serves as a reminder that there are many behavioral, psychiatric, toxic, and medical causes of, ag of agitation. Midazolam and droperidol are used for undifferentiated agitation to work fast and not last too long, but definitive treatment of the underlying cause is key to optimal care and patient safety. There is a violent patient kit located in all ED Pixis machines with the exception of intake. It allows the two medications to be obtained individually and quickly. Nursing or pharmacy just has to enter their request for the violent patient kit. For the consultants in the audience, I'm curious to learn if you bill for critical care time for these agitated patients requiring pharmacotherapy. Please indicate on the Poll Everywhere survey if you do. Your choices are yes, always, yes, sometimes, or no. All right, so uh, interesting. Um, only 22% of you say yes, always. About half say yes, sometimes, and 22% say no. So if you need even more proof to believe me that these encounters can be viewed as a resuscitation, realize that you can actually bill for critical care for patient encounters where pharmacotherapy is used. The critical care definition is listed on the slide. Again, view these patients as unstable and the patient encounter overall as a high-risk event for both patient and ED care team.
And back to my prior analogy, think of yourself as an orchestra conductor, as nursing staff is administering medications, call for lab or CT. Once the patient is restrained, somewhat calm and more cooperative, you have a short window of time to get the diagnostic testing that you need to help differentiate your undifferentiated patient. And you need to ensure team safety during this brief window. And throughout these encounters, keep one eye on the patient and the other eye on the team. Embody the ethos of one team, one fight. If you see inappropriate behavior, address it, whether it is directed towards you or others. Let your staff know your concerns and listen to theirs. Come up with a plan and as a team, establish clear boundaries with the patient. Let them know what will happen if they break these boundaries. Anticipate risks for your team. For example, if you're taking care of an agitated patient who abuses drugs intravenously, anticipate that any lab draw will be one of the highest risks of the patient encounter. Make sure that that patient is adequately restrained and make sure everyone in the room is aware of what is happening, where the needle is at all times. I recall one case where a patient was both so intermittently agitated and intoxicated with decreased mentation that I did not feel it was safe to administer additional agitation meds for her sake, nor did I feel it was safe to try to perform an ultrasound guided IV for mine and the team's sake. So ultimately, I ended up putting an IO in her for safety of all involved. But despite all your knowledge, preparation, planning, and team-based approach to these encounters, bad things do still happen. The important thing is how we react and how we set an example for the rest of the team. If someone gets injured, encourage them to step away and get care. If there was a needle stick or body fluid exposure, encourage the victim to go rinse and clean the area and verbalize that you will be adding the body fluid exposure panel to the patient's lab orders. Explain the process of calling occupational health to the staff victim. I have struggled with finding this information online before, so feel free to take a photo of the slide and I'll include the link in my references at the end. Just because we as physicians know what to do when we experience a needle stick does not mean that the other multidisciplinary staff do, especially if they are new hire. So recognize the need to diversify your leadership in these encounters to others who may need your care and attention. If a patient has a known history of being violent, a violet flag should already be on their chart. But this isn't always the case. If you're involved in a violent patient encounter and a flag is not on the chart, you should ensure one gets added to help warn future care team members. A note should be sent to one of the ED clinical nurse specialists. My go-to is Janet Finley or EM practice chair, Dr. Clements, as they can place a violent flag. Criteria for placing a flag would be if the patient demonstrates verbal threats, abusive language, physical aggression, or aggressive statements. The flag needs to reference a note within the medical record stating specific concerns, such as, please see Dr. McGuire's note on October 12th regarding the patient's aggressive behavior. And once you see that violet flag in the chart or encounter a newly agitated violent patient, ensure the purple light is on outside that patient's room. This signals to all staff prior to entering that, uh, that the patient has propensity for violence. So does this work? I'd like to share an example of one of my most difficult but rewarding patient encounters that involves a patient uh, with propensity for violence and an effective flag. The patient was a young gentleman with a pre-existing flag on his chart who had been transported to the floor with chronic recurrent multi-drug resistant osteomyelitis at the start of my West PM shift, who then became aggressive and hostile to inpatient nursing staff upon his arrival upstairs and was escorted from the building by security. He then immediately represented to the ED where he wound back up in West under my care. Prior to coming back, the floor nursing team had called down to our ED team and informed us that it was one of the most scariest and most traumatizing patient encounters they had experienced in all their years of nursing. I was upset at him to say the least. He had been on good behavior in our ED before we sent him up and there was no indication he would behave differently once uh, he got there for the inpatient team. The floor nurses had informed us that an altercation between the patient and his girlfriend may have led to his behavior. He arrived to RED again, this time alone and in calm behavior, and I found him sleeping on his bed with the room lights turned off. I flung open the doors and the curtains and turned on all the lights and demanded to know why he had done what he had done upstairs and then come back. How was I supposed to help him with that behavior? He was apologetic and remorseful and told me his girlfriend had set him off. 
I told him that I now had to have a team-based discussion to figure out what to do with him. And that in the meantime, if he was in any way abusive to any of our ED staff, he would be escorted off the premise again. I also told him his girlfriend was prohibited from visiting him. I then called the CIU who had heard all about him from the floor, but did not have any bed availability. The floor was understandably unwilling to take him, unwilling to take him back. He had a legitimate medical issue for admission with the primary goal being an orthopedic ID consult. And so I held a team huddle with our ED charge nurse, his nurse, the North nurse, security, and the PCA to discuss whether they would even be comfortable with him staying in the OBS unit overnight for an ortho ID consult in the morning. We all discussed what expectations were important to outline for the plan to work. And then we went in as an entire team to outline these expectations for the patient. He agreed to them all and was placed in the ED observation unit. I included a large paragraph of our team-based plan and his agreement to this plan in my note for the night. He ended up being admitted by medicine for over a week for IV antibiotics with consults from ortho-ID and, ortho and orthopedics, and was even taken to the OR for another washout of his infected joint. All subsequent notes during his hospitalization mentioned his, quote, safety plan, that was outlined in Dr. McGuire's note and no further episodes of violence were documented. He did, however, end up eventually leaving AMA. Again, not all violent encounters end up this way, but this is one example of how a team-based approach with utilization of violet flags, documentation, and communication between multidisciplines can work. And as mentioned previously, please report incidents that you experience and encourage your team to do as well, do so as well. Reporting is done through the Employee Incident Report, or EIR. This is different than the Patient Incident Reporting Tool called MIDAS. And finally, I'll add that you are still responsible in some manner for these patients even after you disposition them. The entire team needs to do their due diligence in communicating behavioral issues in the ED to the admitting service. Describe the behaviors that occurred, the interventions done, and the boundaries that were established. If the patient required for security officers at all times to keep them controlled, be sure to communicate that upstairs so they can mobilize, those, mobilize their resources accordingly. If one agitation medication worked better than another, share that pearl with them. Even if a patient has been on fairly good behavior in the ED, but I saw somewhere in their chart that they have been violent in the past, I will be sure to uh, share that with the admitting team when I talk to them. And if a patient is requiring frequent doses of agitation medications, be sure to send a nurse and security upstairs with the transport staff, along with a PRN dose of medication. You are responsible for that patient and the safety of all care team members en route. And recognize that most inpatient teams take longer to first evaluate the patient and order their own PRN medications than we do in the ED. And finally, I'll add that May was recently adopted Evade Teaching, a nationally recognized training program that teaches de-escalation, conflict resolution, and responding to aggression and violence in the workplace. Basically, verbal judo. Security has been using this program since last January, and our department recently sent nurse educators through the master instructor training course. The plan is to collaborate with security to teach these skills to staff starting in 2022. So stay tuned for more information. So many thanks to all in the audience today and to Dr. Casey Clements, my mentor and co-researcher, to my amazing husband, Sean, who puts up with me and all my excitement and time dedicated to this topic, and to all these other, other individuals who have in some way supported this passion, research, or preparation of this presentation today. Here is a QR code uh, that'll take you to all of my references, and I'd be happy to share this um, with Dr. Belamkanda afterwards to be disseminated. And I'd like to open up our time for questions and discussion. And for the record, my daughter Molly turned out more than okay. Thank you so much, Dr. McGuire. That was a fantastic overview. And I know I'll be looking for that violet light. I didn't really notice it at the door before. Um, folks, uh, feel free to please uh, unmute yourself and talk about how amazing this was uh, for you and any questions you have. And also take time to fill out the feedback as well. We really appreciate that. I know the speakers do. They put in so much effort into these talks. We have some folks who raised their hands. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Helmick. Uh, great job, Serena. Thank you very much. 
Sorry, do you think that when we bring people on staff at all different levels, they should go through a more programmatic um, education about violence protection and mitigation? Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think um, actually all staff should, based on our research, that all staff are impacted by this, um, but certainly starting within the ED and then um, opening it up to staff that come down here, such as our ancillary testing services. Dr. Clements. Uh, and Dr. Helmick, actually, there is a new joint commission standard on workplace violence that everyone is going to have to, at the time of hire and annually, do workplace violence training. So it's out of our hands anyway. Um, so my question is, you know, a lot of your work and expertise is looking at the boundaries of healthcare and public safety and service. So you're an ex-police officer. Your husband is a police officer. You, you have worked in that. And I understand that with this assault, you've also had to deal with the legal system, which we've been working with Mayo to try to make better along the way. Can you describe a little bit your experience in trying to work through that system and where you see opportunities for improvement? Absolutely. Um, I think that's a wonderful question. I didn't present data, but we actually surveyed um, staff in the ED and uh, officers with Rochester Police Department about their impression of four different scenarios that are very commonplace within healthcare and whether they would consider a, a violent incident had occurred. And the results were pretty surprising. Um, there is among ED staff, multidisciplinary ED staff in healthcare, um, across the board confusion over what constitutes workplace violence. And there is also among law enforcement, and I would argue among prosecutors as well. Um, and so, and from what I've experienced, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it, we're, you know, I don't think the general public realizes what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that in, uh, expands into the public health sector. I know I didn't when I um, became a physician, I didn't realize that um, I would be dealing with this as a medical student or as a pre-med student. And so I think um, it's really important that we continue to publish these studies to, um, to disseminate this information that, um, that workplace violence is happening on a staggering, um, a staggering level within healthcare. And that um, at a time where we're facing health, uh, healthcare staff shortages due to other things going on, um, we have about 20% of our staff saying that they've considered leaving their jobs just based on workplace violence alone. So we need to continue to um, have conversations with the public health sector so that they're aware of what's going on. And so that they um, have, we continue to ex like expand laws and, um, and uh, you know, continue to um, to uh, make it easier for people to report um, outside of the hospital and to seek justice if they um, are looking for that. Me too. Dr. Lim. Dr. McGuire, thank you for the incredible illuminating talk. Um, uh, Dr. Clements stole my question. And so I'm gonna just, you know, shower compliments. Um, absolutely, I think you nailed me right on the head when you said complacency as well as other things regarding reporting. I first admit that I am complacent regarding that. And then also too, thank you for the shout out for displaying my old uh, training hospital as an example um, in one of your pictures. I thought that was a, that was a nice touch. So sorry for your old hospital. Other questions do we have for Dr. McGuire? Hopefully. And Dr. McGuire, there's a lot of love in the chat, by the way. Oh, thank you. I'll have to look at it later. Thank you, Serena. Um, this wonderful presentation. And uh, in light of the topic, I just want to wish everybody a, a happy National Winnie the Pooh Day. Um, uh, uh, but my question for you is, uh, if I'll just admit, as a provider, I feel like we've and been let down by our community to some degree, uh, especially with the agitated, violent teenager in that these behaviors often become medicalized or a statement of I'm going to kill myself means I'm going to take a very aggressive, very violent individual and I'm going to drop them off. And I, and I say drop them off because I understand there's limitations. I mean, no disrespect. Um, in the emergency department, but it feels very, very challenging for us to actually take these pay individuals who some of them obviously have medical reasons, but many of them 
um, just have very poor behavior and, and, and send them to the place where I think they should be, which is, you know, locked up. And um, can you comment a little bit about that? Because you've been, you've lived in both worlds and you understand this at a deeper level than I do, why we struggle so much with the almost unidirectionality of patients coming to our emergency department, but uh, struggle so much with getting them sent back to a, a different disposition. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really great question. And you point out that this is uh, an issue of a, this is an issue at a systems level and is not just involved within the healthcare environment. And I think that's so important to point out. It's not something that we're going to fix within the walls of healthcare. It's something that needs to expand into the community with all uh, public sectors and general public involved. And so um, I'll say that um, from a law enforcement perspective, it is a, it's a litigation risk from their side as well. If you have a patient saying, um, I'm going to harm myself, and you're not quite sure exactly what's going on, not having medical knowledge, um, you're, you're kind of um, at some points um, pushed into a corner where you have no, um, no alternative than to um, have a, a medical professional clear them to potentially go to jail. Um, that's just, that's just where we are um, right now with some, uh, the way, uh, the way some things are. And as we are putting more stress on law enforcement to not become hands-on in some patients, I think we're going to see an increase in that. Um, with that said, um, Dr. Clements has started a, a really great uh, group here called the Community Collaborative Work Group that I've um, been um very honored to be a member of since intern year. And it actually has um, quarterly meetings um, with our community, actually monthly, I should say, monthly meetings with community members, including law enforcement, where we talk about these very same uh, concerns, um, including you know the fact that juvenile detention center was closed down with COVID and how that's really impacted us in the emergency department, um, because we are definitely seeing it. Um, and there's unfortunately right now with COVID, nowhere for them to go as an alternative without family saying that they feel comfortable in accepting them home in their care. So just um, a long-winded answer to say, I we all recognize that there are system issues behind this, and it's going to take a, a system uh, uh, to come together to fix this issue at this point. Thanks. And just one quick follow-up question. Are we ever empowered to say no in the emergency department? No, you cannot leave this person here. Or is that just not an option? Because that feels like that's it's never an option uh, to say no. Yeah. I mean, I think Mtala would tell you that you have to... Um, you have to do your due diligence and recognize whether they, you know, clear them to be discharged, which could potentially happen quickly. Um, but I don't know if we can actually ever just turn down a patient who shows up based on Mtala. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.